Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we're di- diving back into the world of literature. Uh, we're going to be covering a modernist novel and sort of some of the ideas behind the modernist novel, the structure, the form, things like that. Um, the modernist novels vary greatly. But before I get too much into that or too much into The Sound and the Fury, which is what I want to talk about today, I do want to give some of the background of what's going on with the modernist novel. Uh, One of the things that happens in the late 1800s going into the early 1900s is you start to have the writings of Freud come out. And the writings of Freud, whether people like him or not, um, have a big influence on literature. They have a big influence on how people see the novel. Uh, When we have the realism and naturalism period, there's the, the... desire to make things realistic, uh, to try to paint life the way it actually is, you know, to get away from the fantastic and the, uh, you know, almost supernatural of the romantic period and, and sort of give a picture of life the way it is. And so with the realism and naturalism, you try to get, they, the, the writers would try to get a little more, you know, the way humans are in, in reference to the rest of the world. Well, with the writings of Freud being thrown into this, uh, you also start to have writers that are trying to get characters that and, and works that are more in line with the way people actually think. Now, the traditional plot line for a novel up through, um, you know, naturalism and uh, realism and naturalism is sort of what you learned in high school. You have your initial incident, you have your rising action, you have a climax in the action where it's sort of the peak of everything, and then you have the action kind of tapering off until you have the resolution. This is something that the modernist writers were looking at and realizing that this isn't the way life works. You know, they were looking at the plot structure of a novel and the way daily life worked, and they realized that just isn't it. You don't have a straightforward plot line. So they start to play around with things. And one of the things that they play around with is the timeline. So instead of a story that starts in one spot and keeps going until you get to the end, you know, chronologically, they start to move back and forth. And this is something we're very familiar with in, you know, in the modern times, because we've seen lots of movies and read lots of books and lots of television shows where, you know, the beginning of the movie or whatever will be, you know, the end uh, or close to the end. And, and, you know, everybody's bleeding, everybody's half dead. And then the character says, well, wait a minute, let me go back and tell you how I got here. And then the character will move back and forth in time until they eventually get you to the end. So this tradition started by the modernists of playing with the timeline is not something that's very odd to us. We're very used to this. We have lots of movies that do this, lots of books that do this. But at the time, this was an innovation in writing because for the most part, novels would start and follow the chronological time period. Now, there were a few novels that sort of jumped around a little bit, but it wasn't very common. That wasn't the way that most people were doing it. So the modernists were really the first ones to innovate that. And they also started to think about the way 
people think and wanted to sort of represent that in their literature. So one of the things that you start to see in the modernist novels is that um, the characters, when they're talking, when they're thinking, when they're telling you the story, they don't follow the plot line because your brain doesn't follow the plot line. You know, your brain moves back and forth in what's known as a stream of consciousness. Uh, you think of something which reminds you of something else, so you think of that which reminds you of something else, so you think of that. And that's pretty way, pretty much the way your mind goes through its day, every day. You know, you wake up in the morning thinking about what you're going to have for breakfast, and you start making that breakfast. And then that makes you, you know, that reminds you of the time, you know, you went out on a date and you had the same thing in a restaurant after the movie, or, you know, and, and it starts you thinking about that person you were out with. And then that might start getting you thinking about the person you're with now. And then then you start thinking about things you've got to do for your day. The brain doesn't work in a straightforward timeline, in a straightforward plot line. And so the modernist writers, seeing that the brain didn't work the way that novels were portraying it, wanted to make something that was much more uh, based on the way we actually think. So they started writing in stream of consciousness. Now the one that really sort of gets the gets the ball rolling on this is James Joyce uh, with his novels Portrait of Artist as a Young Man and Ulysses. Um, Faulkner is sort of following in Joyce's footsteps. Now for me, I find Faulkner much more readable than Joyce. Um, and this isn't really a defect of Joyce as much as it is I don't know as much about Irish culture as I do about American culture. Um, both uh, Joyce and Faulkner are putting very intimate details about the culture when they're writing. You know, they're still sort of following on that realist tradition. So they're putting realistic dialects into this. They're putting, you know, realistic objects that you would find when you're you know, if you were in these places, uh, realistic clothing and, you know, not having as much of a background in Irish culture, uh, especially in the time period of Joyce, there's a lot of his um, allusions uh, to things. And when he's talking about things that just don't uh, settle with me right now, I imagine somebody who's Irish would look at uh, Faulkner the same way, and they wouldn't, you know, have an understanding as much of the the culture in the South in America, especially, you know, pre nineteen fifties, and they would probably struggle a lot with the dialect and the things that people were describing. I'm not saying these things are unreadable. I'm just saying, as an American, as someone who has more firsthand knowledge of American culture, I find. Faulkner easier to read. Uh, I know many people will disagree agree with me, and that's that's what literature literary analysis is all about. Um, I, I don't pretend to be the end all and be all here and tell you all of what's going on. I'm giving you some perspectives and some ways of looking into things. I strongly encourage you, as I talked about in you know earlier episodes, to also look at how other people talk about these things. So going into Faulkner uh, in, and The Sound and the Fury, one of the things that kind of helped me get into it a little bit is I had a little bit of understanding of the history of the time period. You know, this is the post-Civil War South that he's writing in. Uh, in fact, he actually, in The Sound and the Fury, puts the dates uh, on the top of the chapters. There's four sections. Uh, each 
section takes place on a particular day. Well, sort of. Uh, through you know the thoughts of the characters, the, the sections are also telling you about things that are happening in other time periods. Uh, the 200-page novel roughly covers about 30 years of events, so it moves back and forth a lot. But one of the things about um, Southern literature and Southern history uh, that really makes it sort of ready for modernism and, and flow into modernism very well is that we talked about the fact that modernist writers felt that they were living in a broken world where none of the old ways were holding together. And so they were kind of left having to piece things back together. And that's very much what you have in the Southern literature. You have an old society that the ways they used to do things aren't the ways that they're doing things anymore. And they're kind of sitting there wondering what's coming next. Now with uh, Faulkner, uh, one of the things that is a little bit difficult to read in there is some of his language, and I don't mean the dialect, uh, I mean the use of a particular word, and I, which I'm not going to say the word, uh, but you know what word I mean, the N-word. Um, and this is one of the things that people have sometimes felt, well, we should take this out of literature. Uh, we shouldn't read literature that uses these that word. But I think if you do that, you're erasing uh, how things actually were. And Faulkner is not painting the South uh, and using that word in particular as a way of, of, of being derogatory. He's trying to be accurate. He's painting the South that he lived in um, the way it actually was. You know, the good parts, the bad parts, all of it. And this is one of the things that a lot of Southern readers for a long time disliked Faulkner. They felt that he was a very disloyal son of the South because he he wasn't painting the South and the Southern culture as this perfect culture where everyone was happy and everything was perfect. And then those darn Yankees came down and ruined everything for everyone. You know, Faulkner doesn't paint life like that. He very much has things that he admires about Southern culture, and he also has things that he very much dislikes about Southern culture and sees as something that needs to be changed. And so this kind of puts him into a much more realistic writer. Um, you know, a lot of people love the novel Gone with the Wind and the, and the movie Gone with the Wind, but Faulkner is very much in a tradition that is opposite of that book, and they came out roughly close time periods. Uh, Gone with the Wind is very much um, talking about it as if it's a glorious time period, you know, pre-Civil War, and how everything kind of gets ruined by the Civil War. Uh, and, and it gives a false picture of the way life was. Um, Faulkner doesn't do that. Faulkner very much points out the ugliness of racism, the ugliness of ignorance, um, you know, the ugliness of just people who are uh, lost and don't have a direction. Um, Faulkner's characters are also not always easy to pigeonhole and to say, this is the good guy, this is the bad guy. Because with Faulkner's characters, even the ones that you don't like, uh, you generally get enough information about them to understand, yeah, they kind of, I can, I can kind of see why this person turned out this way. It's not that he's, you know offering uh, a justification for the way that these characters are. He's just representing the complexity. 
and representing the fact that in the real world, it's hard to point to any one person and say, that's a good person, that's a bad person. Because good people do bad things, bad people do good things, and that's just the way the world is. And Faulkner very much does this with his characters and does this with his books. Um, you know, one of the uh, least likable characters in literature is in this book, and another of the least likable characters is in his next book. Um, and yet both of them are uh, people who have been sort of excluded and pushed out. Uh, the character of Addie in As I Lay Dying uh, was basically abused by her father and, and basically sort of pushed out of the life that she wanted to live and forced to live in a life she didn't want to live in um, and, and has a lot of resentment about that. So even though she's not a likable character, you still kind of get a sense of you can have a little bit of sympathy for her because you realize the situation, the time period, the choices for a woman, she didn't really have any good choices and she really wasn't ever going to fit in, at least not into that time period. So when you're reading Faulkner, whether it's this novel, whether it's the uh, As I Lay Dying, whether it's any of his other novels, I always told my students, don't go into this thinking about what's going on in the story. You know, it's it's actually even better if you go in with the Faulkner novels and, and read a little, you know, summary of the story uh, before you read the book. Because you're not really getting a lot of story, you're meeting people. And that's what I try to tell my students. If you go into this thinking you're going to read a story and it's going to follow traditional themes and conflicts of a story, you're not going to get much of a story. But what you're going to get are very realistic people. Uh, realistic to the point where uh, one of the semesters I taught as I lay dying, uh, there's a the youngest child in that is named Vardaman. Uh, one of my students became obsessed with finding out what happened to Vardaman after the novel. She did all kinds of research on Faulkner to find out if he ever wrote about Vardaman again. Does Vardaman end up okay? Does he get moved with a better family? Is he all right when he grows up? And it's like, okay, Vardaman doesn't really exist. I had to kind of like, kind of bring that point back to her. It's like he's a fictional character. But these people become so realistic that you do almost feel like you could go to these places and meet these people. So as you're doing, as you read this, and I hope you do decide to read these novels on your own, um, don't go into them with the expectation of a story. Go into them with the expectation of you're sort of meeting people and you're being brought into an environment. Um, Faulkner started out as a poet. He started writing poetry before he wrote uh, stories before he wrote prose. And this means that his prose is very similar to what poetry is. And by that, I mean poetry tends to be much more dense. A poet will say in a few lines what a novelist might say in 20 pages. And so you have that, you know, condensed information of a poet, but put into a novel. So Faulkner's novels are really novels that you have to read more than once. You can't read these once and get all of it out of there. Um, with The Sound and the Fury in particular, I would highly recommend reading the whole thing cover to cover and then going back and reading it again because the first section is actually the hardest and that's the section we're going to talk about today. 
Um, and it's because of the, the narrator telling the story. Now, there's four narrators in this story. Each narrator tells one section. There's four children in the Compson family. That's the family that this is built around. Um, there's Caddy, Quentin, Jason, and Benji, or Maury. Um, and Benji tells the first section. Jason tells the... I'm sorry, Quentin tells the second section, Jason tells the third section, and the fourth section is told by a third-person narrator. So the you don't get the uh, daughter telling her own story. You only get her story through uh, the narrator and through her brother's perspectives. Now, this is one of the things that if you were doing a feminist criticism of this novel... You could definitely write a lot of uh, papers about that, how the feminine voice is kind of silenced and, and only given through the male perspective. Um, this is actually a book, why I teach this book, and As I Lay Dying also, these are books that you could write paper after paper after paper and never run out of topics, really, because there's just so much in here. But I want to go into starting looking at this. And remember, this is written stream of consciousness. Uh, this is written uh, where the timeline is also broken up. And the first character is Benji that tells the story. Now, Benji is someone who would probably be considered severely autistic if the story were to be written today. Now, that diagnosis didn't exist then. But um, Benji is nonverbal. Uh, the only thing he can do is sort of cry. Um, he doesn't have a comprehension of time. Uh, everything to him in the present and the past are the same. So anything in the past is just as real to him as what's in the present. He's sort of broken loose from time. He'll see something or hear something or smell something and that will take him into a flashback uh, to a different time period. And then occasionally he'll get pulled back to the present. Now his flashbacks and forth are never to uh, uh, un unimportant times. He never flashes back just to a day he's, you know, nothing's happening and he's eating ice cream. These are only specific events, uh, important events that the novel jumps you back and forth to. And Faulkner did kind of compromise and used uh, changes in font to, to show changes in time. And most of the changes in font pretty much are accurate. When you change from regular font to italics, you shifted time. When you shift back into regular font, you shifted time again. There's a few times where that doesn't quite work out completely, uh, but Faulkner's original plan for Benji's section and especially, and for some of the other sections too, that was each uh, specific time period was supposed to be printed in a different colored ink. That would help the reader figure out, oh, we're back when Benji's three. Oh, now we're when Benji's 16. Oh, this is when Benji's 33. But it was too expensive to do, and so they kind of settled for using the italics. But when you start this, the date on the chapter, and the chapters are done by dates, not by chapter numbers. And the first chapter is April 7th, 1928. Uh, the chapter starts out, through the fence between the curling flower spaces. I could see them hitting. They were coming toward where the flag was, and I went along the fence. Luster was hunting in the grass by the flower tree. 
He took, they took the flag out, and they were hitting. Then they put the flag back, and they went to the table. And he hit, and the other hit. They went on, and I went on along the fence. Luster came away from the flower tree, and we went along the fence, and they stopped, and we stopped, and I looked through the fence while Luster was hunting in the grass. Here, Caddy, he hit. They went away across the pasture. I held to the fence and watched them going away. Listen at you now, Luster said. Ain't you something 33 years old going on that way? Okay, so just from this first um, couple of paragraphs and, and starting into the next paragraph, you get thrown right into the mind of Benji. And Benji is sort of like a camera that doesn't fully comprehend what he's seeing, but he's showing you the images. So if when you're thinking about Benji, it might be a good idea to think of him that way, to think of him as a camera. And he's just kind of panning around and looking at things and showing you things that he doesn't fully understand or that he may not even understand at all. And you, the reader, have to sort of piece together what he's showing you. Now, one of the things about Benji's section is the first time you go through it, and this is why I say read it first, read the rest of the book, and then come back, it, it's very difficult to figure out what's going on. And once you know what's going on and then you read it again, you're like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's completely logical. I can, I, I can see what he's doing. Like this first section, this first paragraph where he sees the two people hitting and they pick up the flag and one hits and the other hits. And then they say, here, caddy. Um, he's watching two people play golf. And once you know that he's watching two people play golf, you read that passage again and go, oh, of course they're playing golf. It, it makes perfect sense. And then he, when the one uh, golfer says, here, caddy, he's calling for the caddy. Um, and then Luster tells you, you know, listen at you, carrying on that way. You know, Benji doesn't even always know when he's crying. Sometimes in this section, Benji will start crying and you only know that he's crying because of what some other character says to him. You know, in this case, Luster tells him, you know, listen at you carrying on like that. And also, you know, why would he be crying? At this point, it doesn't make any sense. But a little further down, you find out that his sister's name was Caddy. So he mistakes the Caddy that the golfer is calling for, for his sister. And this kind of takes him into different time periods as he hears or sees this. So as soon as he hears the name Caddy or the word Caddy, his brain can't comprehend that they're not talking about his sister. And obviously from this much, you know that obviously his sister must not be around anymore for whatever reason. If you go a little further down um, the section, uh, they crawl under a fence. Oh, before they do, they said, we went along the fence and came to the garden fence where our shadows were. My shadow is higher than Luster's on the fence. We came to the broken place and went through it. Again, these are little things that you have to kind of pay attention to with Benji. Um, the fact that he tells you his shadow is higher than Luster's isn't an accident. He's telling you that to let you know he's a lot bigger than Luster. Luster is someone who is smaller. So he's probably either a very large child or, you know, teenager or large adult. And Luster is, is someone much smaller. And this is the way you really have to piece together Benji's section. And this is why you can't read Faulkner like you read a lot of other novels. You can't just skim through it 
because sometimes a single phrase or a single passage will completely change the meaning of what you're reading. Um, you go on to the next uh, paragraph. He says, wait a minute, Lester said, you snagged on that nail again. Can't you never crawl through here without snagging on that nail? And then it shifts into italics. Uh, Caddy uncaught me and we crawled through. Uncle Maury said to not let anybody see us, so we better stoop over, Caddy. Caddy said, stoop over, Benji, like this, see? We stooped over and crossed the garden where the flowers rasped and rattled against us. The ground was hard. We climbed the fence where the pigs were grunting and snuffing. I expect they'll be sorry because one of them got killed today, Caddy said. The ground was hard and churned and knotted. So you start to get, uh, in the next paragraph, it says, keep your hands in your pockets, Caddy said, or they'll get froze. You don't want your hands froze on Christmas, do you? So then when you go back and look at that passage, you realize that the, you know, um, that the, uh, that everything's kind of like rattling, the, the vegetation's, uh, crunchy, the, you know, the, the ground is hard and knotted. The ground is probably frozen from winter, um, because, Christmas is coming up, and she, you know, tells him to keep his hands in his pocket. Now, there's other things that you kind of should keep in mind when you're thinking about uh, what time period you're dealing with with Benji. And there's a few tips that I always give uh, my readers or my students as as they're re before they read this. One of the things is look at who is taking care of Benji. Whoever's taking care of Benji is going to be a big indicator of how old he is. In the earliest ones, TP is around. Um, so when TP is kind of the one watching over him, Benji's about three years old. And a lot of times in this time period, he's also called Maury. This is another confusion that I'm going to get to in a, in a second after I talk about his the people who are taking care of him. Now, Versh, whenever Versh is taking care of him, this tends to be more when um, he's a little bit older or a teenager. And when Luster is taking care of him, this is when he's a full-grown adult. And we know from the passage that he's, in the present, 33 years old. Um the name is also significant because this, this book likes to throw some curves at you. There are sets of characters with the same name. There are two Mori's. There's Mori, whose name gets changed when he gets a little older to Benji. So once he gets starting to, starting to be called Benji, he's older than three. Up until he's three, his name is Mori. They change his name. And then there's Uncle Mori. And then there's two Jasons. His brother's name is Jason, but the father's name is also Jason. Um, and then there's two Quintons. Uh, Quinton is the his oldest brother, but then there's also a Quinton that is Miss Quinton, who is the daughter of Caddy. And sometimes with the Quintons, that gives you a hint of when it is, because the daughter of Caddy is born and around uh, pretty much, she's talked about pretty much after uh, the brother Quentin commits suicide. So that you have to kind of keep all of this in mind, and, and you almost have to be a detective as you're reading this. And again, this is this is not you know uh, a novel that you can't get, but it is one that it does take a little work, and it's one of those novels that because it takes work, you find every time you read it, you get a little more out of it.
Now there are a few uh, major events that kind of go through this, uh, and I, I sort of summarized them, and, and he goes back and forth. The earliest time period is when he's about three, and this is the death of uh, Demody, who is what basically their grandmother, that's what they call her. Uh, then you have sort of the, the time period where um, Caddy is becoming a teenager, and she's starting to... Uh, become curious about boys and starts to move towards being promiscuous and ends up getting pregnant. Uh, then you have, you know, kind of the time period where she's getting married. Then you have uh, the suicide of Quentin. Uh, then shortly after that, you have the death of the father. Uh, then you have, um, you know, Caddy's sort of been excommunicated with, from the family, uh, because she was pregnant before she got married. Uh, and then I think the husband pretty much figures out that that's not his baby and leaves her. Uh, so she loses the baby. The baby comes back, Miss Quinton, to be raised by the family. And she's sort of out of the picture. And this is why in the present, anytime Benji hears the word caddy, he starts crying. He starts freaking out because he's looking for his sister. He's... And this is one another one of the arguments of why he's uh, severely autistic, is he doesn't like change. He still expects everything to be the same forever. And this is why he doesn't understand the concept of the past versus the present. Um, let's see. Uh, in this, you get uh, a lot of Benji's mental state, too, by things going away. Um, in, uh, the, you know, it's quite a few paragraphs down, uh, he's in there in the house and he's younger and Caddy's coming home and he wants to go out with her and Versh is going to take, uh, Benji out so he can see Caddy. Uh, and Versh and Uncle Maury kind of walk away and go around a corner where they can't be seen. Well, instead of him describing it as, you know, they walked into the other room, he describes it as Uncle Maury went away, Versh went away. Um, and you'll hear that a lot of, throughout his section, that as soon as something isn't seen anymore, it goes away. And, and one of the things that this uh, gives you is, is kind of an accurate picture of his mental state. Like for small children, I mean very small children, babies, when you play peekaboo, the thing that's so surprising for them is that you disappeared and reappeared. Now as we develop intellectually and mature, you don't do that anymore. You, you realize that just because I don't see this person, they're still there. You know, when you have a really small child, if you have a, a box of cookies and you put it behind your back, the cookies are gone. They just don't exist anymore. And as the child gets a little older and becomes a toddler and they see that you put the box of cookies, you hide them, they start peeking around the other side of you because they're able to know intellectually that the cookies are still there. They're just around you. They're around the other side of you. So this gives you a lot of the state of uh, Benji's mind. Now the other sections I want to kind of briefly touch on um, because I don't want this episode to get too long. Um, in Quentin's section, this section takes place in 1910. 
It's actually, the date on that is June 2nd, 1910. And this is the last day of Quentin's life. Um, he goes away to Harvard. This is after his sister gets pregnant, after his sister gets married. And in his section, he kind of talks about sort of the things he does that day as it goes to the end of the day and he commits suicide. Um, and it gives you a psychological picture that's very different from Benji. Um, Quentin is able to understand things a little better. Benji is, is just like a camera. And part of Quentin's problem is he understands things too well and he takes things um, to be sort of too serious in a way. Uh, Quentin is very much someone who believes in sort of the idealized Southern gentleman and chivalry and, you know, the honor of the Southern lady and things like that. And he sees all of that destroyed through Caddy and he sees himself as unable to do anything about it. Uh, and he can't survive this. Um, and, and this is something that is kind of in Faulkner as well, because remember I talked about Faulkner was someone who sort of idealized some of the things about the South, the idea of the Southern gentleman, educated, literate, uh, but can still hunt and, you know, ride horses and, you know, be an outdoorsman, kind of the almost like the Southern Renaissance man. And these traditions are things that, you know, Faulkner is very proud of. But Faulkner is a very complicated person because he also realizes that that whole Southern gentleman tradition is also based on slavery and, you know, the exploiting of an entire race of people, of, of treating an entire race of people like property. And so Faulkner himself, in a lot of ways, you can see echoes of Quentin, uh, echoes of Faulkner in Quentin, because he's someone who is at one time you know, at once both in love with the Southern traditions and sort of realizes that it's all based on nothing. And he can't, he doesn't have an identity without that. And time is, is something that plays an important role in all of this. You know, our first character, Benji, is completely unlocked from time. He's all over the place. He doesn't know the past from the present. One of the things that Quentin does early on in his section is smashes the face off of his watch and pulls the hands off. Um, but he can still hear the clock ticking. Um, so Quentin is trying to escape from time. He's bound by time. Uh, Benji's completely set free of it. Quentin's completely bound by it. Um, and as Quentin's section goes on, he actually becomes more and more difficult to read because his his mind is basically disintegrating as the day progresses. Um, Benji's pretty consistent. Benji gives you clues of when he's going to jump to another time period. Uh, Quentin has like sections towards the end of his section where he's just free associating. He's just throwing words out, you know, one right after another that are making all these random associations because he's been completely unhinged. He's, he's lost touch with reality. Now, when you go into the third section, uh, the third section is Jason. And Jason is the youngest, uh, well, he'd probably be the second youngest son. Benji would be the youngest. Um, but Jason is uh, pretty much, you probably consider him a sociopath um, by 
you know, a, a, a diagnosis today of him psychologically. He cares absolutely about no one else. The only important person for Jason is Jason. And this is Jason, the son, not the father. Um, he's the mother's favorite. She always thinks he's the best. He's the perfect child. He's the only one that's really hers. Um, and he cares nothing about his mother whatsoever. In fact, he's pretty much just annoyed with her most of the time. And he views everyone else as either a way of getting what he wants or something that is in the way of what he wants. And so his section is much more straightforward than the other three. It's a much more straightforward narration, much more no-nonsense, but also kind of reveals a lot more of that ugliness. Uh, you know, he's he's pretty openly racist in large parts of his section, both against, um, you know, the, the, the uh, blacks in the community and against Jews, too, because he talks about that when he's talking about investing money in the stock market. And so he's very much a character that is uh, only focused on himself, only focused on money. And he's sort of the representative of, uh, of, of someone who is cut off from everything because he's never close to the rest of his family. You know, in the earlier passages when Benji's talking about them all together as children, Jason is always off somewhere by himself. He never fits in with the rest of the family. He's, he's never apart. He's kind of the one that's the little tattletale that always likes to hold everything over everyone else's heads. Uh, when his brother Quentin commits suicide, he basically, you know, sort of laughs it off as, you know, we wasted all of this money on Harvard and they don't even teach you how to swim uh, because uh, Quentin committed suicide by drowning. So Jason is a very sociopathic character. He's, he's horrible to everyone. And his language and the way he describes things makes that very apparent. Now, the final section is um, a third-person narrator. So we get out of the first-person narrator. The first three are first-person. And this roughly follows uh, Dilsey uh, through, her, uh, through, through the, day of, the last day of the uh, action, which is Easter Sunday. Uh, it's Easter Sunday in the story, and if you look it up on online, uh, that was actually Easter weekend for real that year, uh, April 6th, 7th, and 8th. April 8th of 1928 was actually Easter. Um, and so Faulkner, again, brings in a lot of this realistic imagery. Even the whole setting of where Faulkner puts this, um, Faulkner... Uh, has a habit of having uh, a lot of his books take place in the same area. Uh, in fact, there's actually a fictional county uh, that, that has all of these things. You know, As I Lay Dying, The Sound and the Fury, and lots of his other books and short stories take place in what's known as Yaknapatafa County, which is a fictionalized version of Jefferson County, Mississippi, which is where Faulkner actually grew up. So Faulkner is, is, does a lot of really weird blending of fiction and reality. So imagine if you were to write a book or a series of books uh, around the town you grew up. 
but you changed the name of the town to something else. You gave it a fictional name. But, you know, the rivers were in the same place, the, the stores were in the same place, the restaurants were in the same place, you know, the streets looked exactly the same, everything was laid out exactly the same, but you just fictionalized the name. And this is something Faulkner does. Um, Faulkner's books not only connect tightly within themselves, they connect to other books. Um, there are parts where uh, you'll see one of the characters go to town and they'll either mention someone or they'll see someone who's a character in another story. Um, Stephen King likes to do this. Stephen King is kind of a more modern uh, version of a person who does this. If you read a lot of Stephen King's novels, you'll see that he has uh, characters that will be referenced um, or characters that will, you know, sort of be in the grocery store when, you know, the, the character of another novel is in that grocery store. This is sort of something that Faulkner really gets going uh, with his Yakna Patafa stories, and The Sound and the Fury is one of them. Okay, um, I do think you should read this book on your own. I think it is something that is very worth reading, but I think you just have to be patient with it. Um, it it's going to give you a lot of the feel of what the modernist writers were doing. Still trying to be realistic like the realism and naturalism writers, but also trying to be even more realistic by imitating the real way that the brain works. Uh, remember that these modernist writers are trying to rearrange the world so that it makes sense again. And you see a lot of this in Faulkner. And the, and the final scene of this, Dilsey actually takes Benji to church and uh, it sort of ends on a high note. Now, something that I haven't really covered about this book, uh, but I do want to cover it a little bit before I break off the episode, because if you think about this for any length of time, you realize it stands out as pretty obvious. Um, you know, what uh, very famous story does do we know where you have four different authors telling the exact same story from slightly different perspectives? Um, and, a, and a hint for that is uh, those stories and this story revolve around Easter. Uh, this is very much a sort of parallel to the Gospels. The Gospels, you have the four uh, Gospels, each telling the story of Jesus and his life, but from slightly different perspectives. And this is what Faulkner's doing in this book. He's telling the same story, but from four different perspectives. So you get different views on it. There are also other things. This isn't just something that I came up with off the top of my head. This is something that's been discussed a lot, and it's something that's pretty obvious. Uh, one of the other obvious things that should make you realize this is kind of connected to uh, the Gospels is that they keep telling you Benji is 33 years old in the present. And if you've studied Christianity, you know 33 is the age where Jesus was crucified. In literature, any time they really uh, stress the idea that a character is 33 years old, you should be automatically realizing that the author is uh, making this a Christ figure. 
Now, in Benji's case, Benji is a failed Christ figure uh, for two reasons. One, he gets castrated, and there's a long tradition in the church that people aren't supposed to spread the word if they've been castrated. Uh, And two, he is unable to speak. So while Benji can look at things and know when something is right or wrong, um, when things are right, you'll hear him talk over and over again about caddies smelled like trees. Um, and when things are wrong, he starts crying. Like when she's kissing a boy or when she gets pregnant or, you know, she's at the wedding. Any, anytime something is wrong or right, he's able to sense it, but he's not able to express it. And that's why he's a failed Christ figure in this. Now, I've often also made the argument that there are actually two failed Christ figures in this story, and two for different and for different reasons. The other one is Dilsey, um, the uh, the family's cook. Dilsey is uh, a black woman, and Dilsey definitely knows right from wrong. And she tries to kind of keep everybody on the up and up and keep them on the moral path. But she fails because no one will listen to her because she's one black and two a woman. And so while she knows what needs to be done and what should be done, um, she's unable to spread the word. She's unable to get people to accept the word. Um, and she sort of, uh, is a failed Christ figure for the other characters, but not necessarily for uh, the reader, because she sort of does try to, in the end, uh, you know, kind of show this uh, moral foundation that holds everything together. And Dilsey is actually based on a real person. Uh, This is another place where Faulkner has blended fiction with reality. Uh, Faulkner grew up, their, their family had a cook, uh, Carolyn Barr, who everyone called Mammy Callie. And Mammy Callie had been with the family uh, since before the Civil War. And then after slavery ended, she sort of then worked for the, fa- the Faulkner family as the cook. And uh, Carolyn Barr was in, in pretty much every way Faulkner's real mother. He, he had a real mother who was his biological mother, but Carolyn Barr was the one that kind of uh, tried to steer him towards being a good person. He would spend long hours in the kitchen, you know, talking with her and her husband. Um, and, you know, she was always trying to keep him from growing up to be such a, you know, a hooligan and a good for nothing. And, you know, she was always sort of uh, the the moral mother in his life, um, even though Faulkner was was had a pretty wild life and we'd have to go into that a lot that would take an episode in itself um but Faulkner kind of paints Dilsey as almost an homage to Carolyn Barr um she's someone who knows uh but in this story no one will listen to her uh and, and so she is someone that if these people would just listen uh, she might actually be able to save them. But because these people have, you know, kind of all gone off into their own insanity, they, they're kind of all lost. Okay, uh, I'm going to break off for now. I do want to say that 
this uh, second season, we are going to expand into different types of literature. So we are going to start talking about movies. We're going to start talking about songs. And in fact, um, the episode after the next one, because the next one will be philosophy and based on Marx, uh, we're actually going to start talking about uh, movies a little bit. I want to do a silent film out of the 1920s, um, out of the modernist period. And we're going to talk about the silent film Metropolis. So if any of you get a chance to watch the silent film Metropolis before that podcast, I highly recommend watching it. Um, but we're going to discuss that film because it's one shows a lot of... Uh, of the modernist tradition and it expands literature into visual literature, but also because this is a very influential film because this is sort of the origin of the science fiction movie. A lot of the science fiction films that come after this owe a lot to Metropolis. So we're going to do that in a couple of episodes and next episode, we're going to talk some about Marx. Okay. I hope all of you are doing well. I hope all of you are staying safe have a good night.